I wonder if you've ever thought about that moment when you will finally meet the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever thought about that? When you're standing right in front of him and he is looking at you. Or maybe it's better to say when you're bowing in front of him and he lifts you up and his eyes look into yours. Your creator, your redeemer, the one who holds your very life and eternity in his hand. The one who hung on the cross for you. The one who rules the universe. The one who loves you. What will that moment be like for you? I may have mentioned this before, but I'll never forget what Steve Gibb told me years ago when uh, I was a guest at his church in Cairns, Australia. If you'll excuse me, I want to go down and get my clicker because I just realized I'm not starting my slides. Uh, I was over there in Australia years ago, and uh, you know, Steve was a pretty athletic guy, and he was off and out running and uh, diving and things like that. You couldn't keep up with him. Just, he was crazy in shape. And he said he was out in the ocean fishing with one of his deacons one day, and he saw a big spout of water go up. And he said, what is that? And his deacon, who knew all sea life there out in the ocean, said, well, that's a blue whale. You've got your snorkeling gear here in the boat. You should go check it out. So Steve Gibbs said he put on his gear and swam over unprepared for the sight that met his eyes. He said as he was gazing into the water, he beheld the largest animal he had ever seen in his life. He felt tiny in front of it. A blue whale. Its tail was so long, he said, that it disappeared down into the blackness of the ocean as it just floated there. And he looked from side to side trying to take in this massive creature. And he said all of a sudden the, the whale lifted up his tail and shot down and took off, leaving him in this a torrent of water with, with all these bubbles and all these waves. And Steve said that he swam back to the boat and climbed in. And he was shaking all over because he told me I had never before been in the presence of something that awesome. And then he said, the thought struck me immediately. What will it be like to stand in the very presence of God, the very presence of Jesus Christ? Does that thought strike you the same way this morning? Do you look forward to that day? Do you long for that day? Because Jesus taught us to long for his coming, as we've been talking about in the end of this this passage. He told his disciples that when they pray, they ought to say as part of the prayer, may your kingdom come. And that is a, a, a request for all that God is going to do to wrap things up in his timetable to come to pass. And that's asking for Jesus to to show up and deliver his people and conquer his enemies and establish his kingdom with himself as its king on the throne, visibly for all to see. For you to go up and to be with him. Revelation 20, 22, at the end of the book of Revelation, 
that climaxes in this chapter with the Lord's return to set up his kingdom and ultimately to lead believers to the new earth, John cries, Amen, come, Lord Jesus. Is that our response? Do we really want him to come? We've been looking at this last chapter of Revelation, which is the announcement of the Lord's return. It's a glorious announcement, starting in verse 15 of Revelation 11. It's accompanied by loud voices and lightning and earthquakes. And because we are told to long for his coming, I have posed this question as we've looked at this text. Why should we long for his coming? Why should we have this burning desire to see the fulfillment of these events on the earth. And I said there are four different reasons. We've looked at three of them. This is the last one this morning. There are four reasons I think we can discern from this text that tell us why we ought to long for his coming. The first is because his kingdom represents the visible fulfillment of God's promise. And we see this in verse 15. If you look at the text, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of the, our Lord and of his Christ. That God already owns everything. He already rules over all. But this is something unique that hasn't become yet. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. In other words, there will be a new kingdom, a visible, political, hands-on center of government with Christ on the throne while the forces of darkness are banished from the earth. And as people of faith, We should long for that day to occur so that what we only can imagine right now will be able to behold. Second, we long for the kingdom because it means that the will of Christ will be asserted on the earth. In verse 17, the 24 enthroned elders fall on their faces before God. And they cry out, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. And this idea should make our hearts sing with hopeful anticipation. If we are troubled by the sin that is in the world, if we're discouraged by the sin we still see in our own lives, the apathy we have at times toward the things of the Lord, the the distraction that the world is to us, our lack of care for others. And, And we would love to be released from the curse of this world and to see the righteous will of Christ established throughout the whole earth. Third, we should long for the kingdom to come because it means that the moral balance of the world will be put to rights. And we took some time last time to probe this idea. In verse 18, it says, The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both great and small, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. This is the moral restoration of goodness and truth and righteousness in the earth. It is God's justice finally meted out. All of the bad judged. All of the good rewarded and affirmed. Perfectly and fairly for any who have struggled to understand how God can be aware of gross iniquity, terrible things that have happened in the world recently and have happened in the world in in, in in history, and and seemingly God does nothing about it. 
when we see the arrogant despisers of the gospel, exalted and faithful moral believers often beat down, when we learn about things like trafficking and child abuse and murder and genocide and drug and gang killings and innocent people being shot, and that those who are guilty of such terrible sins sometimes seem to go unpunished or get off easy through an imperfect or overwhelmed justice system, when we see how imbalanced it all is, we should be aware that in the end, all wrongs will be set to right. And true righteousness will be rewarded in Jesus Christ. The dead who have rejected Christ will be tried and convicted by the all-knowing judge. The satanic forces, which I think is a reference here when he says the destroyers of the world, will themselves be destroyed. And the Lord's faithful servants were rewarded. We're in the middle of what's going on. We're not at the end yet. And the end gives us great hope. Don't be anxious about unrighteousness in the world. Don't despair. Live for Christ and long for his return. And do what we can now to see righteousness flourish in the earth. Yearn to see the righteousness of Christ fulfilled in your own testimony while you wait for him. And remember what Peter teaches us in 2 Peter 3.15, that the Lord's patience in waiting to judge the world means salvation for many. But there's a final reason we should long for the coming kingdom, and it's the reason I've already brought to your attention this morning. And that is we should long for the kingdom because the kingdom will bring to the world the immediate presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. The immediate presence. And I say immediate because the Lord is present now. He even indwells us. But it's not visible. And he will be visibly and immediately with us. That is, the Lord Jesus himself reigning on David's throne in the city of Jerusalem. Visible. Accessible. You think people have a strong desire today to visit the Holy Land? Many of you have. Some of you wish you could get there. I finally had my opportunity in uh, the summer, right before the summer we had COVID, uh, 2019, right? The first time I'd ever been there. You think people really want to go to the Holy Land today? Listen to what the Lord says in Zechariah chapter 8. In This is what, what happens when the kingdom is established. He says, people shall come even the inhabitants of many cities, the inhabitants of one city shall go to another saying, let us go at once and entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts because he's reigning there. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts in those days, 10 men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Why? Because the Lord Jesus Christ will reign there. He will be visible. He will be accessible. People will talk about the Lord, not only as if he is coming from heaven, but as he is reigning over the earth, just as immediately and actually as the President of the United States resides at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Or the Prime Minister of England at 10 Downing Street. Now, how does our text in Revelation 11 point to this divine presence? Well, let's look there. 
in chapter 11, verse 19. This is the last verse of the chapter, and we've, we've dealt with the last phrase of it, but I'm just looking here at that first phrase, the first part of this verse this morning. It says, Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within the temple. Now, admittedly, if we've been tracking with the progression of ideas in Revelation, this should not be what we were expecting to read at this point. What we were expecting to read is that the heavens opened and the Lord Jesus is seen coming to reign. This is what we get in chapter 19 when we finally get there. I think I'll be, if we actually go through with getting the new building and the Lord works everything out, I'll probably be preaching chapter 19 there, not from this pulpit here. But that's what we expect here. This is the announcement of his coming. He's describing the coming, but instead, the temple, it says, is opened. And of all things, the Ark of the Covenant is revealed. Why? Well, keep in mind, this is not the first time Revelation has made reference to the heavenly temple or tabernacle or the furniture in it. Back in chapter 6, we saw that the souls of the martyrs who were beheaded for the witness of the gospel are praying to the Lord from under the altar of sacrifice. And then in chapter 8, we saw the angel offering incense on the altar of incense. And he says the incense are the prayers of the saints. The altar of sacrifice was located in the courtyard of the temple. You see it there circle. Those entering the courtyard in, on the earthly tabernacle could offer their sacrifices there, but they had no access to the tent in the middle, which when the temple was built, that became the temple proper. They could not get in there. That's the inner temple. It was kept holy. It was kept separate from the altar of sacrifice. The altar of incense was located inside the holy place. It was placed right in front of the curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place, or what we know as the holy of holies. And in the most holy place is where the Ark of the Covenant resided. In this passage, something remarkable occurs. John beholds the opening of the most holy holy place. In fact, that's the word you see in verse 19, where you read the word temple. It's not the hieron. That's the Greek word for the temple complex, the courtyard, the temple in general. What you read there is a translation of the word naos, which refers to this holy place. And this is where in the earthly tabernacle and later the temple, the Ark of the Covenant resided. And we understand from Hebrews that the earthly tabernacle was only a copy. It was a shadow of the heavenly. So in Revelation, we move from beholding the altar of sacrifice. Then we behold the altar of incense. We're moving closer to the Holy of Holies. And finally, the Holy of Holies opens and we behold the very Ark of the Covenant itself. Most Israelites lived and died without ever laying eyes on the Ark of the Covenant. Do you realize that? You just think that since they, were, they lived back at that time, everybody saw it. No, no, no. It was kept hidden. In fact, most Israelite priests lived and died without ever laying eyes on the Ark of the Covenant because it was kept out of sight in the holy place and only certain priests could enter behind the veil and behold the Ark, and very rarely did that happen. In fact, John himself, I dare say, in writing this, had never seen the earthly Ark of the Covenant. He wasn't a priest. 
So this is truly a remarkable event that John is, is beholding. He's beholding the heavenly Ark of the Covenant. Why is it that the Ark of the Covenant is made visible in the heavenly temple at the announcement of the Lord's return to reign? The reason is the Ark of the Covenant represented the real immediate presence of God. To have the Ark of the Covenant among you was to have God among you. God manifested his presence in the tabernacle. And this piece of furniture, the way God designed it in Exodus, uh, we, can, we can read the whole instructions there. The way God designed the furniture was that the ark itself, which contained the Ten Commandments, and was covered with the mercy seat on top, with the, with cherubim, the, the golden cherubim guarding it. This ark was to pinpoint the location where God dwelled, where he manifested his presence on the earth. And so it was a whole holy place, a most holy place. That is why it was kept hidden, out of sight. You could come close to God by coming into the courtyard of the tabernacle. You could come a little closer if you were a a member of the tribe of Levi and you were anointed as a priest and and you could go into that first part of the compartment and, and change out the showbread and put incense on the altar. That was a special privilege in itself. But rarely did any priest go behind that second curtain and actually look with their eyes upon the ark. And the fact that the ark was hidden indicated that God's people were being kept at arm's length from God's very presence. It wasn't until the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for our sins, the Lamb of God, that those who came to God for forgiveness from their sins had complete unhindered access to God's presence. In fact, we are now, Hebrews tells us, invited into his presence through our high priest, Jesus Christ. That is why when Jesus died on the cross, God pronounced this new truth that we can come into his presence by doing what? Remember, he ripped the curtain in two, opening the way to the Ark of the Covenant. So the Israelites came to associate the Ark with the real presence of God among them. In the Old Testament, when the people were wandering through the wilderness, the ark had just been built. And whenever they struck camp and moved to a new location, the priests would carry the ark before them. And Numbers 10 says, Whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. Why? Because the ark was going out. And when it rested, when they came and camped again and built up the tabernacle around the ark of the covenant, he said, return, O Lord, to the tens, ten thousand thousands of Israel. You see, the ark is directly associated with the Lord himself. In Joshua 3, the ark was carried before the people as the Jordan River divided and they walked across. In Joshua 6, remember, the ark was carried with the army marching around Jericho to assure them that the Lord was with them in the battle. And once a year on Yom Kippur, which is Hebrew for the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter the holy place with the blood of the sacrifice. The high priest had this privilege. Once a year, he would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat, which covers the Ark of the Covenant, assuring the people of God's continued presence with them for another year. So in Revelation chapter 11, 
when the ark is revealed inside the holy place, it is the unveiling of God's presence. As if, as if the curtain has been torn asunder in the heavenly temple, revealing access to God. Only this time, it is not a mere invitation for people to come to God. God is coming to them. He is showing up in the person of Christ, the Messiah, to judge. And so after this, we have, uh, as I already explained to you, some of the, uh, the foreshadowing of the next list of judgments. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. The Lord Jesus is really coming to reign to establish his actual, visible, immediate presence on the earth. Does this enthuse anyone does does this make you say yes we can't wait for this day does it make you yearn for the future the day when you can actually be with jesus christ i know as those who are believers here we're waiting for the rapture to happen some of us will pass out of this world before that happens we'll go immediately to be with the lord we will be reigning with him in the kingdom but we will still be rejoicing that our king is there and that he's visible to the whole world. Does that create a longing in you to, to know that Jesus Christ is visible and here? We're not just reading about him and, and talking to him and, and talking about, about him to people. He's actually there? The truth is, we will not have a desire to be with Jesus then until we grow to know him now. You realize that? Our longing to experience the immediate, visible presence of the Lord Jesus, to see him face to face, is directly tied to how well we know him right now. Many of you have already been ahead of me a little bit in these remarks, thinking about the fact that the Lord is with us already, right? He promised, behold, I am with you always, Matthew 28. Ephesians 3.17, Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. But it is not I who live, it is Christ who lives in me. We know this truth about the Lord Jesus. But do we know the Lord Jesus? Like Paul says, that I may know him. It was still his goal he was driving toward. In Philippians 3. You know, there are some very touching stories online about friends who met and grew close to one another through being, you ready for this? Pen pals. Do you remember that old-fashioned thing called a pen pal? They communicated only by writing letters to one another. And I know that's not done often nowadays because with things like Zoom and FaceTime, if you want to get to know somebody from far away, it's pretty easy to do that these days. But some of these pen pals started writing to, other, to, to each other decades ago before many of you were born, before computers were something that, that not only not the military just had, but everybody had them. And, they could, and the World Wide Web became a thing. Way before that, before electronic devices, when it was very expensive actually to pick up the phone and call long distance. And 40, 50, sometimes over 60 years later, there are several stories you can find. These pen pals finally meet. After building a close relationship for years, during their growing up years, they might have started when they were in grade school being pen pals. And they go through their marriages, through having children, 
through relocations, for career, uh, through career changes, and all the things that happen in life. They follow each other. They write to one another. And oh, the emotion and the weeping and the embracing, the running to embrace. When years later, they finally meet face to face. It's very moving. Now, I'm not suggesting this morning that getting to know Jesus is like having the divine pen pal, okay? It's not where I'm going. But I think there are some important parallels here that help us think through this idea. Imagine if one of the pen pals had not been as faithful as she or he would have, should have been in writing or not bothered to really read the letters carefully or maybe one of the writers was not willing to be very personable but always wrote about surface matters and so forth. It would be very difficult for them to grow close and without the closeness, there would be no emotion and without that emotion, how do you know that they would even have bothered meeting face to face? And in the same way, our affection for Christ and our longing to meet him, to be in his presence, is directly related to the investment that we make in getting to know him. How can we long to meet someone who we may know all about, but we don't really know? Do you want to know how to know the Lord Jesus? I want to give you some suggestions this morning in knowing the Lord Jesus so that we can obey the Lord's call. Pray, may your kingdom come and so that we can long to be with the Lord. These are very practical and I just want to tick them off for you. First of all, we need to read and meditate on the Gospels. Read the stories of Jesus. Read them again. Meditate on the words about his life and his sayings, what he taught. We rehearse them again and again, considering their meaning, falling in love with their beauty. Behold the compassion of Jesus for his followers, his boldness in the face of falsehood, his commitment to the Father, his kindness and gentleness and passion for truth. Learn what Jesus loves. Learn what he doesn't love. Read how he calms the storm and marvel with the disciples. Stand in the crowd with the poor and know the comfort of Jesus' words. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Agonize with Jesus in the garden as he prays to the Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Go with him to the cross as he suffers like a sacrificial lamb and wonder at his gracious words, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Feel the burden of the mission that he gives us after his resurrection. Go into all the world. Don't be satisfied with a surface knowledge of the Gospels. Don't think you know the Gospels because you know the content of the Gospels or the stories of the Gospels. Or you could take a, a test over where the stories occur in what chapter and get a good grade on that test. Read them again and again until you grow to deepen in your affection for and your understanding of the Son of God. 
God has given us a written word, not so that we can just know about him and what he's doing in the world, but so that we can know him. Secondly, I should hasten to mention, read and meditate on other scriptures about Jesus Christ outside the Gospels. I don't want to skip that, right? The, the, the Old Testament stories which often point to the Lord Jesus Christ or the epistles which help us to interpret who Jesus was and what it was he accomplished for us. In Paul, we meet the one who presented us righteous before the Father. In Hebrews, we meet Jesus, our great high priest. In Peter, we meet the one who suffered for us, who gives us grace to suffer with him. And in Revelation, we learn to anticipate the glorious return of the one before whom we stand in awe. Thirdly, talk to Jesus. That's called prayer. But sometimes we need to be reminded what that means to pray. The New Testament teaches us to pray to the Father by the name or the authority of the Son through the power of the Holy Spirit. But there is no scripture forbidding us to pray to the Lord Jesus himself. In fact, there are a lot of examples of that in the scripture of those who prayed directly to the Lord Jesus. And the point is, we will grow to know Jesus Christ as we speak to him upon reading his word, as we tell him how much we love him, how much we worship him for who he is for who the scriptures declare him to be. Tell the Lord what is happening in your life. Tell him how you are trying to live your life as he taught in the gospels. Tell him how thankful you are that he saved you. Spend time with the Lord. Be still before him like you would be still before somebody whom you love, somebody who is a dear friend. But realize he is your Lord. And finally, Obey Jesus. Do what he says to do. Imitate the kinds of things Jesus loves. This is being a follower, a disciple of Christ. A disciple studies the life of the master, the teacher, and patterns his life after him. Now, this is not an add-on, oh, by the way, go ahead and obey Jesus. We're supposed to be doing that, right? No, this has everything to do with relationship. We cannot know him outside of obeying him because it is by active obedience, intentional living like Jesus that we come to know him by experience because this is how we show our devotion and this is how he teaches us to know him. We can say we love him and know him, but that indicates that we are going to follow him and it is through this obedience that we really come to know him. Now, looking at the passage as a whole, these are the reasons we long for his coming, that we can genuinely pray the prayer, may your kingdom come. The kingdom of Christ on earth represents the visible fulfillment of God's promise, the will of Christ upon the earth, the moral balance of the world put to rights, and the immediate presence of the Lord. You know, in John 14, verse 9, Jesus asks Philip a question. It's a penetrating question. I considered it in a fresh way this week. Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Do you remember this question that Jesus put to Philip? 
we've been living together. We've been sharing meals together. We've been walking together. You still don't know me, Philip? Is it possible that we can be with the Lord, that we can walk with him and not really know him? How long have you been with the Lord? Some say, well, I've been with the Lord for many years. Some would say, I've, I've been with the Lord since I was a child. Others might say, I was saved later in life. I've been with the Lord for about 20 or 30 years. It's been wonderful years walking with the Lord. But how long have you known the Lord? I'm grateful for a church of believers who resonate with this question. This is not a rebuke to the congregation. This is encouragement for us to continue on what we know we ought to do. Many of you have been growing to know the Lord for many years and you're a blessing to us. You're an example to us. But I wonder if Jesus could repeat these words to any of us today. Have I been with you so long and you don't know me? Because we can know all about the Lord and even have assurance of our salvation. We've trusted the Lord. We know the Lord is going to take care of us. He's going to bring us to glory. But to really know the Lord is to long for the Lord, to pray with all our heart, even so, come today, Jesus, quickly and truly mean it. May it ever be true of us, no matter what God does with us as a church, that we are a people growing in our affection and longing for that day when we will finally behold our Savior. Father, we're...